you have a museum dedicated to video games and we're talking about the history we're talking about the people who put things together and it was interesting because when I was reading about the mission statement it talked about how some people back then when they were creating it they didn't actually know exactly how big it would become some people did like Nolan Bushwell but on the other side maybe some people didn't really understand and you have places like this that is preserving that history so that you could come and see it and interact with it. And we're really happy today to have uh, Sean Kelly to talk with us. He's one of the co-founders of the museum. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. There's actually three of us. Uh, it's myself, my partner Joe Santulli, and my, my third partner John Hardy. <clears throat> oh, excellent. So you guys are going to be moving to a new location and then you're going to be opening soon, right? In March? Well, we're not moving. This is the first. We've oh, never, first. Had, okay. never had an, uh, um, a permanent exhibit. We've been doing traveling exhibits for about 15, 20 years now. We did, uh, we've done E3, I think, for the past 12 years. Um, we've done DICE. We've done GDC. We've done South by Southwest. We've done PAX. We've, we've been doing traveling exhibits for you know, 15, 20 years. We also ran our own show in Las Vegas <clears throat> called uh, Class Gaming Expo. We did that. Uh, we started that in 1999, and the last show was 2014. Um, so <clears throat> we've been we've been at this all for a long time, and basically what we are is we're we're the original collectors. We're, we were collecting video games way before anybody else thought it was cool to collect video games. I remember the uh, the first uh, video game collecting BBS that I ran uh, in my home computer was in 1988. So this was just after uh, the video game market crashed, and you know Nintendo was was popular at that time. But at that time, I had already decided that it was important to to kind of uh, preserve all of that stuff back from you know the Atari days. And at that time, you could go to a flea market or a garage sale and you can pick up that stuff for for pennies. It was costing nothing. But <clears throat> the amount of stuff, and you know, my partners John and Joe did the exact same thing. Uh, we just kept rolling through back you know back at a time when you could get that stuff. So together. Uh, between the three of us, we easily have the largest collection in the world. There, there's nobody that comes close. Uh, um, basically, what we did is uh, we started putting that uh, collection on, on exhibit uh, at you know E3, like I said, Class Gaming Expo, and the collection has grown over the years. And um, you know, about six or seven years ago, we decided, you know, what we need we need a permanent place for this exhibit. We need to have some place where people can come every day of the week and, and check out our collection, check out the, the things that we've gathered over the years, rather than just once or twice at a trade show, uh, you know, well, once or twice a year at a trade show. So we kind of, we put together the uh, a nonprofit and uh, we started looking for a home. We finally found one in Frisco. Yeah, I actually got to see uh, you guys at E3. I wasn't at E3 last year, but the years before that, I actually saw some of your exhibits. And it was really interesting because obviously you can see things that you recognize like from the Atari and things like that but there was like consoles and there were different uh, like accessories that, sh that came uh, for games and things like that that I've never seen before and it really is really interesting and in the, in the originally we started as classic gaming site as well but I mean all the time you run into people that don't even realize like how far it goes I mean there's so much that I don't know about classic gaming just because I wasn't exposed to it how do you choose like what what goes in? Is it like just really anything under the gaming label, or is there something specific that you look for? No, that's actually a really good question because uh, that's the difficult part. You know, as, as we were deciding, the museum is is about twelve thousand square feet, so uh, it can't. I and mean, we could probably fill twelve thousand square feet three or four times with our collection. So we had to actually go through and make some decisions: what we're going to show, what we're not going to show. 
and you, know, you, you talk about weird and obsolete stuff, but we have or weird and uh, uh, unusual things. We have uh, we have a ton of that stuff, but you know we kind of have to make a call when we're deciding what we're going to show people. Are we going to show people things that they're going to recognize, or are we going to show people things that that they won't know what the heck it is? So uh, there's there's a lot of things that we decided that are just too cool, whether people are going to understand what they are or realize what they are or not. That people had to see them, and there's a lot of things like. For example, we were looking at, uh, we were, I just came back from Texas uh, two days ago, and I'm actually going back down in about three more days, but um, we were, uh, we were. I was looking around the museum over the weekend, and, and you know, we're not open yet, we're kind of trying to put the finishing touches on it, but uh, in looking at uh, some of the exhibits, I walked through and I thought, we don't have a box with Atari 2600 on display anywhere, you know? I mean, something as simple as that, you know, we have probably eight of them, you know, eight box ones, but there wasn't a box one anywhere in the museum, and I thought, you know, is it really necessary? Do we need to have a box one on display? Do we take up, you know, kind of valuable real estate with a box of Target 2600 when most people know what the box looks like anyway, or would we rather have, uh, for example, the graduate computer for the Atari 2600, which is a keyboard made by Atari that plugs into the top of the Atari system. There's only one of them in the world. Um, would we rather show that, or would we rather show? So we had to make these choices all throughout the, the you know, deciding what we were going to populate the exhibits with, and uh, it, it was tough sometimes. It was really tough. You know, some of the things that, that haven't made the cut, uh, you look back and you think, oh, shit, you know, I, I wish I would have shown something like that. But it also gives us a lot of stuff to work with as we keep the museum exhibits fresh. So the museum's open six days a week, and people, I think, are going to come back, you know, every few months hopefully so the idea is that you know so maybe we don't have a box of Atari 2600 put put out right now but maybe three months from now we'll have every box of Atari 2600 every style every so it's going to give us a lot of opportunity to keep the exhibits fresh and we're excited about it but you know you may come there and you may say hey where's the where's the ColecoVision driving module I don't even have the ColecoVision steering wheel well, we have the ColecoVision too. We just didn't happen to put it out. But don't worry, it's coming. When we do a whole exhibit on ColecoVision, you'll see everything ever made. So it, it, it was it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, and I think that's what's really interesting because, like, for at, at first when I got the Atari 2600, uh, I got the one that you, you that everyone is used to seeing. And then what happened is something went wrong, like it, it broke or something like that. I ended up getting the Sears one, and a lot mm -hmm. of people didn't know like it was exactly ran the same thing. And and yeah. I would take it and people would be like, wait, that's not Atari. I'm like, yeah, it is. It plays the exact same thing. I never got into the ColecoVision because I never got one. But then I ended up getting like an Atari 800. And then I remember when my my cousin gave me the drive and connected it. And to me, he just handed it to me. I didn't know that thing was like five, six hundred bucks for just a, a five, five and a quarter uh, floppy disk. So it was just amazing. And that was, you know, and then you see like the other side of like other games that people never even got to even see before. So the idea, like you said, where someone may come in and they're like, oh, I know the history of this. Uh, there's so many things that you'll have those gaps in your in 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 what you play just growing up. So everyone that goes and experiences the museum will have something else to bring to it. And like you said, it just makes it so you can go back over and over again. Absolutely, that's the that's the whole point. We're we're gonna keep changing stuff out. We got tons of stuff to change out. We got tons of stuff that uh, that isn't out. We're gonna change things up all the time, and uh, I think that uh, I think that's gonna be a lot of fun for people because I think you know, like I said, people are gonna come back every couple of months, maybe maybe a couple of times a year. But we want it so that you know, as people come back, they're gonna see new things that they didn't see the last time, and that'll maybe make make it worth the trip. You know, we have a lot of areas in the museum that. Uh, that are set up like that. Uh, we have uh, uh, what we call uh, it's called head-to-head -head hall, which is a, a long, uh, a long countertop full of uh, 
full of game consoles, and we intend to switch those consoles up all the time. For example, you know, the, the opening setup, we have uh, 10 different systems, but we have from the most common PlayStation 2 to the most bizarre uh, video brain system. You know, the, uh, the idea is that we can change those systems up all the time. There's a lot of things in the museum that we're planning on uh, switching out. We have uh, uh, an 80s arcade with 40 arcade machines in it, but we have probably another 30 or 40 machines that we can swap in and out from time to time. So the, the idea is that we're just going to keep things fresh as we go along. Now, as far as the getting the items together, uh, luckily I've been able to talk to people who've collected things, and you know, some people talk about how when they're collecting, they're looking for like a specific set of games, and they'll look for like those hard-to-find games, those hard-to-find consoles. What what is the process of gathering the items uh, for the museum? Like even before, like when you first started out, what was that process? Was it just a matter of going through that same collecting, looking for history, or did you have people donate? Like, what was that process like? It was, it was a lot more fun to collect years ago than it is today because today collecting is so much about money. Back then, um, you know, my partner Joe, he ran a fanzine called Digital Press. Uh, and this was, you know, pre-internet days, way before eBay. And basically what Joe did was he put together this little newsletter. He would mail it out uh, once a month. He would make an issue and he would mail it out and there would be classified ads in the back of it. And you would use those ads to connect with other collectors. And it was, But back then it was all about trading stuff just to get something that you didn't have. So I'll give you a, a Nintendo World Championship cartridge, because, but I need a, a G.I. Joe. It didn't make any difference how much it, how much it was worth. It was all about trading so everybody could fill in the gaps in their collection it was a lot more fun today everything is based on money and you know i mean it's it's the natural progression of things it's going to happen there's nothing that you can do about it but uh back then you know i used to go uh i, I live in chicago my parents were living in in, in uh, uh northern california at the time and i used to go to the flea markets in in the bay area and uh visiting them and I would ship home boxes and boxes of stuff and I would be, I would be buying like Atari lab label prototype cartridges at the flea market for a dollar I mean these things sell for 200 bucks now I would ship home boxes and boxes of stuff I remember one vendor at, at uh, a, a drive-in movie theater in San Jose had uh, Starpath Supercharger stuff like brand new in the box every game ever made the superchargers and they were, they were a dime each so I mean I just bought as many as I could fit into my bag and it, back then it was so much fun and it wasn't even about the money like I didn't need all of that Starpath stuff that I bought but it was cool and I took all that stuff and I traded with other people who didn't have it and got more stuff for my it was so much fun and you know like I said it, it's different now but the, the nature of the beast uh, the way that collecting has turned out a lot of the stuff that is shown up today would have never been found back then. It would have been thrown away because it wasn't worth anything. So because this stuff is worth something, people are finding so much more of it. So that's that's kind of the cool part, but it costs you a whole heck of a lot more money to buy it than it used to, too. So, you know. Is there something that uh, maybe doesn't make the cut uh, right away or something that may not make the cut, period? Because I'm thinking, like, for instance, uh, one of the first computers I ever used was my uncle had the Texas Instruments, the TI-994A. And yep. I remember playing uh, games on that and also doing educational software because he wanted to make sure I get that balance. And then right. I remember also playing the Amiga, again, the Amiga system. My cousin was really big into that. And then it was like a battle back then between the Amiga and the Atari ST, and it's like... You pretty right. much could play the same games, but people were like, "Oh, it was it was like console wars, but with computers." Would, would something like that, like those type of comp early computer systems, make it into the museum as well? 
Indeed, yeah. In fact, uh, very much the same way that uh, we have that that, uh, that long countertop full of consoles, we have the same exact thing on the opposite side of the, of the museum with computers. So we have uh, we have a TI 994A set up to play with a bunch of cartridges that you can play. We have uh, we have a Commodore 64 in there. We even have a you know an original black and white uh, TRS-80 uh, Model One computer that you can play. All of those computers, and I think there's. I think there's eight or nine of them set up on that countertop, but all of those computers are set up uh, with games next to them, little instruction sheets to tell you how to load a, a cassette onto a Commodore 64. You have to type C load and wait for the cassette to start spinning, and all of that stuff is set up so people can come up. And it's going to be fun to watch uh, a 12-year-old walk up to a cassette-based uh, computer and not have any clue how to play a game. You know, And even when he does finally get the game to load using the, the little cheat sheet that we have there, um, he's not going to know how to play either because there's no joysticks but it's going to be a lot of fun but we wanted people to be able to experience what it was like at that time and, and loading a game off of a cassette is a big part of that experience uh, I, I mean back in the day you know, when you were to play a, a game on a cassette and you had to load it off the cassette you went and made a sandwich when you were waiting for that <laughs> game to load because it it took forever you know and it's going to be fun I, I think that's a big part of the experience to understand where things have come from so people get the experience you know putting in a five and a quarter inch floppy or, or popping in a cassette or you know playing a game without a controller it's gonna be a lot of fun but we have all that stuff so we have an atom in that setup with all that stuff set up and i think people are gonna really get a kick out of it yeah, I think it's really interesting because you have people who are at the ages where they're having kids. You have people older. So you have people that spanned all of the different gaming uh, time frame, like from the f uh, 50s all the way up to now. So you have different generations, and I can see where people bring, like, their kids. And like you said, it, they're like, hey, check this out. Look at this. And they're like, what? I'm, you know, I'm, they only grew up with Xbox, you know, or something hey. like that. And now they get to see this, this, these older games and th where things came from. And a lot of times people talk talk about even how games were harder and like you said even loading up games I remember being taught how to, to build a, a little game on the Texas Instruments and program it so it's really right. interesting that you can have that generation where someone's gaming today but then they'll see this and be like wow or like the handhelds that they had back in the day that were so awesome we have a whole we have a whole room set up for handhelds. Uh, uh, it's really uh, really a lot of fun. Uh, we have I mean, handhelds. If you look, if you ask somebody who's you know twelve or fifteen years old right now what a handheld is, and they automatically think it's a Game Boy. But there were a lot more handhelds before Game Boys, and all of those handhelds played one game. So you played that game until you were bored with it, and you bought another handheld. Uh, we have a whole room set up to that uh, set up just for handhelds. And on one side of that room is all your Game Boy stuff, but on the other side of that room, uh, it's a lot of the old battery-operated Mattel footballs and, and the Battlestar Galacticas and the auto racing and the Coleco Donkey Kongs and, and uh, the Game & Watches and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's where handhelds uh, handhelds started. So that, that handheld room is, is probably one of my favorite parts of the museum. It's really, really cool. Can't wait to, to, to see what people's reaction is to that. Now, it's really awesome. You mentioned Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, so I actually went to, like, the Field Museum uh, very early on. Uh, my uncle was really into making sure that I got culture and stuff like that, but honestly, my favorite was going to uh, uh, Museum of Science and History. I remember going out there, and you would walk inside, and you'd see all the different science stuff, and, like, towards, like, the back center, they had the gigantic uh, train uh, set, and it, I thought that was awesome. You'd always see the kids run up and look at that train set, because it was so huge, but it's something that a kid could play with in their house. Um, yeah. I know that for the museum you're going for interactivity and I was looking like on the press release like for instance you have like the giant 
Pong on a big screen, but like you said, it's more than that. You have the Hall of Consoles. Can you just tell people about some of these other interactive events that they'll be able to take advantage of? One of the other things that we have is uh, we did a we did a, a thing called uh, it's called the History of Online Gaming, and in this uh, in this exhibit there are two podiums, one on each side of the exhibit, and <clears throat> there are two terminals set up. So you can stand at that terminal and you can either snap a picture or you can type a message, and it sends it over to the other terminal. And there's there's this there's this clear tube that you can kind of watch your message being transmitted over to that other terminal. Uh, it's simulated, of course. But <clears throat> the point is is that on each side of those terminals, they have a little dial. So you can switch that dial to 300 baud or 1200 baud or 9600 baud or 144. So you can watch the different speeds as they progress, and you can change the speed of your message. So if you send a message at 300 baud and, and you watch that little light go across, it's going really, really slow because that's what it was like to be online at 300 baud, or <clears throat> you can switch it up uh, all the way to the other end of it, and you can you can select it to be fiber optic. So at that point, that LED that just is going across the screen instant or across the sky instantly. Um, that was one of the other exhibits. We have another one that uh, that uh, it's called. Uh, I forget what. We have a lot of working titles that we've been working with. This is, uh, but this title is, is all about tools and games. So one of the ideas uh, that we have in there is it's it's about game or tools that people use to build things in the games, like level editors and and uh, a more modern example is Mario Maker. That's a perfect example. We'll have Mario Maker or Mario Paint on the on the Super Nintendo. Or uh, uh, we have another setup for in that area where you can play a Doom wad, uh, and the Doom wad that you're playing is the museum. So you're playing Doom inside of the museum. Um, we have. Uh, and all this stuff is set up. You can you can play Mario Paint, or you can you can play. We have another in that same area. We have this giant 85-inch uh, LCD touchscreen that you can you can actually uh, edit pixels. So out along the top of it, it's got a bunch of different uh, sprites from various games like Mario, for example, or, or Streets of Rage 2, or or something. And you can drag those sprites down into the editor, and then you can actually you know color the sprites differently, or or make your own sprites based on what the Genesis can do. Um, we have another one for for sound where uh, um, you can. It was kind of interesting. We had somebody uh, develop an app for us in that sound exhibit where uh, she took a bunch of different video game music, and then as you as you run the app, the app will allow you to hear what that music sounds like playing on a different system. For example, if you took Chrono Trigger as one of the ones that we have, and you can press the Super Nintendo and you can listen to what some of the music for Chrono Trigger sounded like on Super Nintendo, but you can also hit a button and change that to what it would sound on a regular 8-bit Nintendo. Or you can even change that to hear what it would sound like on a Sega Genesis. Or take it even further, you can click click the button and hear what Chrono Trigger sounds like playing on Atari 2600. Nice. Uh, it's really kind of cool. There's a bunch of different songs to choose from, and, and you can uh, you can really have a lot of fun with that. Uh, there's a lot. I, I don't want to give away everything, but there is. That's the main the main thing behind everything that we did there is is, is interactivity. We want people to be able to play the game. So it's not like. Uh, I don't know. One of the things that we tell a lot of people is, is we're not museum people. We don't really like museums. We don't want to be stuffy like uh, you know dinosaurs and bones. Uh, video games are meant to be played. So wherever possible, um, we're letting people play. I wanted to ask about um, as far as 
you not only covering just the consoles, the games, also it's about the experience. So I was looking at like the, the gearbox behind the scene because, you know, there's just those moments or those people who made such a big impact in gaming as well that you cover that as well. Because it's also about teaching people about the history and people that put it together. Can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of the museum? Sure. That's that's one of the things that we've been working on for a long time, and that's one of the things that it, it's it's good that we got a head start on. You know, back uh, back when we started running Classic Game Expo in 1999, one of the biggest aspects of that show was that we would have a show where a bunch of vendors would get together and they would be buying and trading, trading and selling. But we would also have a museum exhibit, which is what our you know museum today has evolved into. But then we would have talks and and. Uh, the talks would be given by you know people who were who were in the industry. Al Alcorn talked at our shows. Nolan Bushnell talked at our show. Uh, Steve Wozniak talked at our show. David Crane, the founder of Activision. And we had hundreds of people over the years talk at our show, and that was what we were doing at that time. We were cultivating those relationships, so we know a lot of those people. For example, on on April second, David Crane, who who wrote the original Pitfall and founded Activision, he'll be there on April second because he's a good friend of ours now. Uh, we've kind of maintained relationships with a lot of those people over the years um, and all of those people are you know are certainly invited uh, you know not all of them can come they all have lives but um, you know we'll get those people out we'll, maybe we'll have a, a special uh, uh, a special uh, meet and greet or a special session with with Al Alcorn maybe we'll get Nolan Bushnell to come out for a weekend or something you know, <clears throat> we have all those types of things uh, planned or think those are all options but then we also have a, a really good friend in Randy Pitchford, the, the president of Gearbox. So Randy's been probably our biggest supporter uh, of the museum project, uh, and he's really helped push it along. But Randy, you know, everybody knows Randy. Randy's big in the industry. Randy knows uh, Randy knows a lot more of the modern people than us. So Randy's going to be able to help us bring in, you know, some of the modern people and get support from the the current generation people. That, uh, uh, like I said, most of our expertise is, has been in cultivating relationships with the pioneers, as we call them. That's uh, we that's what we call the, the older guys uh, that, that you know kind of started the industry but uh, Randy's our big uh, our big in so to speak with the, with the modern stuff and uh, he's more than happy to help now is there like a particular piece or pieces that you have that either uh, you know that either gonna show up now or maybe in the future that's your favorites oh boy yeah everybody always asks that it's hard to it's hard to nail something down you know we have some really cool stuff um, a lot of people, a lot of people ask us about our Sega Neptune. Um, the Sega Neptune is the is the Sega Genesis with a 32x built into it. Um, there's this is the only one in the world, and this is only a mock-up, but we have the only one in the world. Um, people always get a kick out of that. We have a Sega Pluto, uh, which is uh, an earlier version of the uh, the Saturn. Uh, we have uh, one of the other items that I always find interesting, and people always find interesting, is a, is a MindLink controller. Um, the MindLink controller is this headband that kind of strapped across your forehead, and it was made by Atari. It was supposed to work with the Atari 2600, and the uh, the theory was that this thing could use you could use your thoughts to control the game. Well, obviously. That isn't even possible today. <laughs> I mean, so it certainly wasn't possible back in 1982, but the Atari made this controller, and, and they actually did get it to work, but the only thing that it does is it recognizes like how you wrinkle your forehead. So if you wrinkle your forehead a certain way, this thing picks up on it, and you can actually make objects on screen move. Um, there's only... I only know of about two or three of those that have ever been found. Um, <clears throat> we have... 
Well, I guess I should say that there's probably one other one, but we have three of them. So we have uh, one of them is going to be on display. We would love to let people play something like that, but unfortunately that one is kind of kind of going to be off limits. Um, we have a lot of different items like that. We have a puppy pong, a, a, an arcade pong machine that was made in the shape of a doghouse by Atari. And uh, the idea was that they wanted to get it into like uh, uh, like children's hospitals and things like that where kids can play it's kind of kind of a whimsical kind of pong machine uh, i think there's only one other uh puppy pong in the world that i know of uh, but we have some really cool stuff this is uh this is this is a i mean I, you know i don't want to pat ourselves on the back but this is a world-class collection I mean, we've been building this collection for 30 years uh, there, there is no collection that comes close, and you know, some each one of us has our our, our own area of expertise. And my partner Joe has has been probably maintaining more of the the modern stuff, but Joe has a complete NES collection, a, a complete Genesis collection, a, a complete Super Nintendo collection. I mean, he has you know every game ever made for practically every system, and Joe's got uh, Joe brought an amazing collection to the table. It's just unbelievable, and, and some of that stuff uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to to finally get to show to people because Joe's stuff for the most part, hasn't really been involved in our traveling exhibits. So Joe's stuff, uh, a lot of Joe's stuff is going to be on display for the first time. Well, I really enjoyed when I got to see you guys out uh, at E3, so I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like to see you guys have a full museum that I can go and, and check out. Dude, and, you got uh, to be there, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I, I'm in I'm in Miami, but I mean, I love to travel, so I'd love to go over to Texas and check it out. Um Oh. So, I mean, we we definitely got to do that. Maybe get some footage and everything. But I mm. hope people will go check it out. You can uh, find it online at nvmusa.org. You guys can go check out uh, all the locations, what they have going on there. And I hope people will come out and see it because I mean, if you like games at all, I mean, that just sounds like an awesome experience. You not only get to see all this great stuff, but you get to, to play with it and and learn as well. So that's really great. And I want to thank thank you, uh, Sean, for coming on and talk with us today. Sure, no problem, bro. Thank you.